All right, Romans chapter 14 is where we're at. Uh, 14, forgive me. Romans 15. Romans chapter 15 tonight. And if you're on the PBI group, a good chance you've received the outline. Let me give it to you now. And uh, matter of fact, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. And then we'll get into the outline so that I can speak about it as we go. Father, thank you for softly and tenderly calling us home. Thank you for those mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for those mercies, Lord, that one day saved my soul, changed my, my life, my eternity. And we're asking, Father, for your mercy tonight. Please, God, spend time with us. Teach us. Help me as I explain these things. God, fill me with your Spirit. He is the only one that can guide us into all truth. Lord, we, we lean on, on your spirit tonight for that help. And we ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans 15, and I'm going to break it into three parts. This outline is a mouthful. Number one, glorification through unification. Glorification through unification, verses 1 to 7. Next part, sanctification of the nations. Sanctification of the nations. That'll be verses 8 to 21. We'll look specifically at how the Gentiles were called out and how God sanctified or set, set the Gentiles apart as a special group. And then number three, preparations and expectations. Preparations and expectations. This is a very practical part of the chapter. Paul is going to be explaining about his next journey that he wants to take and what he is hoping to accomplish. So that'll be verses 22 to 33. All right, so let's get into verse number one. The Bible says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if you were with us last week, you understand what Paul means when he talks about a strong brother and a weak brother, someone who is weak in the faith. We then that are strong, that is somebody that understands the New Testament boundaries, the things that God has said are okay and not okay, and that person will enjoy and, and will partake of what God has said is clean and it's fine to do. That person understands that all days are alike. You don't have to continue on with the Jewish feast days and that Jewish calendar. Those are the examples Paul gave. But some people, their conscience still bothers them on certain issues. So even though God has said these things are acceptable, for them, they, I want to say they have, they have put a few extra rules into their life. And they recognize that these are things that they themselves are convicted about. It is their preference. And Paul's admonition in in verse 1, we then that are strong, we know that those extra rules are, are not absolute necessities in the Christian life. They are not New Testament commandments. They're not things that Jesus or Paul or Peter, anybody told us to do. But, that doesn't mean we condemn or look down on or refuse 
that brother because, or that sister because they have a few extra things that they have incorporated into their Christian walk. We bear those infirmities. We, we put up with it. And, and I don't mean that, oh, well, if you, I'll do it because I have to, but, but gladly. We receive them. We have no issue with it. We're not seeking to, to, to make our lives, uh, let me say it this way, the convenience is not, our convenience is not our first priority. Rather, that person's conscience. That's our first priority. How can I please? How can I edify? How can I help my brother? And if, if going along with this extra rule, this extra conviction, while I'm in their presence, if this will help them, then by all means, I will bear that. The word infirmities, you find this word, this English word, in many other verses of the New Testament. But the Greek word behind it, forgive me, I need to read my note here. As, it's asthenema in Greek, asthenema. I point it out because it's the only time this Greek word appears. And I found it interesting when I looked that word up, it means a scruple of conscience. So maybe you've heard the words, that, that word scruples used before. When somebody, right, they, it, it, it's usually used in, with somebody who has high, a high moral standard. They have a lot of scruples. See, they're, they're worried about making sure everything's right. They, so this person, the infirmity that he's referring to here is somebody who has these extra scruples, these extra convictions. We bear with that. I mentioned them last week, and we're not going to repeat them all. One thing I didn't mention in the list of like the gray area stuff is, is clothing standards, dress standards. Um, you might have been able to deduce that just from the list that I did give you. But those are not things... Now, granted, there are boundaries, right? Modesty, that's the New Testament command. That's a biblical command, is, is to be modest with, with how we dress. Uh, but... Whether we're dealing with dietary issues, clothing issues, music preferences, right? We, and those things we talked about. These things are not worth dividing the body of Christ over. We ought to look at what is fundamentally important. Some things are non-negotiable. The fundamentals of the faith, the truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and that by faith alone we can be saved. That is a fundamental of the faith. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the second coming of Christ, these are fundamentals. These things are non-negotiable. And when it comes to these things, we seek not to please men, but God. We will not compromise the message of the gospel so that we have a larger following. But when it comes to these non-fundamental issues, where you have two options, both ways can be right, that's where, verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now, usually when we talk about being a people pleaser, that's a bad thing. But in this particular context, when we're talking about our how, how one Christian's conduct affects another Christian, if it brings him closer, pushes him farther away from God and the truth, then we need to consider what is going to help him, please him, what is going to help him feel welcome while he's around us. 
And that is where we would take into consideration what that weaker brother, what his conscience is struggling with, and, and we bear with that. We don't make an issue. We don't make it a point of contention so that we break fellowship. Verse 3, Paul uses a scriptural illustration. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. It would be very easy for the stronger brother to say, listen, I don't have time for all your nitpicky nonsense. If you got little hang-ups, you deal with it. I know what's right. I know what's allowed. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That wasn't Christ's attitude. When he came down, the Bible says here at the end, Paul's quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9, which, by the way, is your attendance code for this evening. Psalm 69, verse 9. The reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Um, If I can ask you to look at Psalm 69, 9, the context, the whole chapter is a messianic chapter, messianic psalm, and it's... This same verse was actually quoted in John 2, verse 17, but the first half of the verse. Paul here quotes the second half of Psalm 69.9. When Jesus went into the temple, and remember he he put together that cord of, uh, uh, um, what was it, a a whip made of cords, and then he whipped the people and and got rid of the money changers, knocked over tables. The people then remembered this psalm. 69 verse 9, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, Paul is using the last half of it, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. People were reproaching God. They were mocking, blaspheming, turning the house of God into a den of thieves, abusing the house of God. Jesus took it personally. And is he, he said, this, this house, what you're saying about God, whatever you're saying about Him, I'm with Him. So if you're going to make fun of Him, you're making fun of me. He took it personally. That is how we should feel towards our brother, towards our sister. Somebody wants to look down their nose and, and make our brother not. See, say that you're nothing. You're, you're a weak Christian, so you're not worth as much. We don't share the same convictions, so that makes you less of a Christian. Oh, wait a minute, time out. I take that personally. The reproach that you're putting on him is now falling on me, or the, the Greek root there for falling, it can be embracing. It's, it's taking hold of me. So if you're going to be ugly towards him, you're being ugly towards me. I may not agree with my brother's preference. I may not agree with his particular dress standard or his music, his taste in music or whatever the case might be. But that's okay. Whatever that extra conviction or standard is, he's not sinning. If he wants to honor a certain day as special and I don't see it as necessary, he's not sinning. As long as he's not contradicting scripture, I have no issue with that. And for anybody to say anything rude or nasty or mean or or demeaning about him, I'm going to take it personally. And I'm going to stand up for him. That's what Jesus did. He stood up for, in this case, his father that was being reproached and said, Amen.
you, you, I'm not going to let you get away with that. He came to the defense of the one being reproached. In verse 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Now this flows naturally with what Paul just said. He, he quoted from the Old Testament. And now he's going to tell us why he consistently refers to the Old Testament, even though he's teaching New Testament Christians. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The scriptures offers us patience and comfort. It shows us that when God promises something, it may not immediately be fulfilled, but just wait. Eventually God will do what he said. As you're going through something, the, the scriptures have hundreds of promises that says God will be there with you as you go through the valley of the shadow of death, things of that nature, that offers great comfort for us. Now, that patience, that comfort, knowing when we go back in the Old Testament, we see the kind of God we're dealing with in Jehovah. That causes great hope. Right? We, we have something to look forward to, whether it's in the immediate future or in the distant future. By reading what was written before, the Old Testament in this case, it can really help us through any problem, how to deal with any situation, if it's with a struggling brother, if it's being reproached, whatever it is. Let me give you a few things that we need to learn from the Old Testament. Number one, if we're just going to talk about learning in a very general sense, when you read the Old Testament, you read, you learn about God's nature, the nature of God. You see that He is a merciful God, that He's long-suffering, that He's faithful, that He is holy that He is just, that He makes a big deal of truth and righteousness, but He also makes a big deal of mercy and love and compassion. We can see the type of virtues that God holds in high esteem. These are things we learn from what has been written aforetime. Number two, the Old Testament offers several allegorical, allegorical opportunities. What do I mean by that? We take a New Testament truth, things revealed to the body of Christ, and we go back in the Old Testament, and we take those real, true, literal, historical stories, and because the Bible is just an amazing book, those historical stories can be used symbolically to represent various New Testament truths. Now this I've pointed out to you, not too long ago, I did a Bible study called the Biltong of the Bible, or Biltong Bible Study. And I showed you how, how the New Testament calendar or, or timetable is laid out over and over again in the Old Testament. But to give you a quick illustration of an allegory or allegorical use of the Old Testament, when you have Isaac carrying the wood up Mount Moriah where Abraham was going to, slay his son, right? He's carrying the wood, he has fire, and then he asks his father, where's the lamb? That story, see, it really happened. That's, we, we accept that as real history. But when you look at the symbolic nature of it, allegorically, Isaac is a picture of Christ, Abraham, a picture of the father. Uh, 
the the wood on his on Isaac's back a picture of the cross, the fire a picture of the second death, and there's there's a lot of symbolic lessons that you can learn from that. Now, bear in mind, anytime you're dealing with allegories, you have to first establish the New Testament truth. You don't start with an allegory and establish truth from that. You first have the the truth clearly spelled out, and then you can go back in the Old Testament and find different stories that symbolically fit. All right, number three, something else that we get from the Old Testament. Validation. Validation of God's promises and His prophecies. I want to say this validates the faithfulness of God. When God says it, He will do it. Now, I say promises and prophecies. Those two things overlap, I think, quite a bit. But a promise, we think more of that God will provide comfort. He'll provide for your needs, for your whether those are physical or emotional type things. Those promises, right, God's faithful to. But then also prophecies, we're talking about the Messiah coming, the destruction or the elevation of a nation, those type of things as well. So whatever the case is, God is faithful, and the Old Testament validates all of these promises, prophecies. Now that's great that we have seen how the things God said would happen have come to pass. What that does for us as we read that, we are then reassured that the things we have in the New Testament that have yet to happen, and there are several prophecies in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled yet, we are reassured that those things will come to pass. And then the last thing I'll bring out from this verse, what do we learn when we read the Old Testament? There are admonitions, admonitions, those are warnings about our behavior, admonitions about our behavior. This is something Paul talks more about in 1 Corinthians 10, and whenever we go through that in Bible school, I'll spend more time talking about that. But when you read about how Israel, you can take any example from the Old Testament, but Israel makes several mistakes, we know, as a nation rebelling against God. We see the consequences for their bad behavior. So we can learn from their, their mistakes. So the Old Testament is filled with value for us now in those ways. Verse 5, he says, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. So pulling from what Paul said in verse 3, that Christ pleased not himself. He didn't come and say, listen, if it's convenient for me, that's what I'm going to do. When somebody was making fun of or affecting other people that mattered to Christ, it Christ took it personally. Paul says, let's have that same mind. Philippians 2 verse 5, if you want to make a good cross-reference, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made him, he emptied himself, made him, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. This mind, this mindset that Christ had, coming down, humbling himself, taking upon him the form of a servant. That's a step down. Christ was much stronger than that. But he took on this weak form of humanity so that he could reconcile us to God, so that he could, he could mend a broken relationship, so that he could be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He put up with a lot of human nonsense, things that he knew were unnecessary, but Jesus put up with a lot of this stuff while he was down here. So that 
He could bring a sinner to God. And we as well, we need to know our Bibles well enough so that we know what are the fundamental things that cannot be compromised, that we cannot budge even the smallest distance, and where are the things that we can be accommodating, where we can be very gracious and say, you know what, it's okay if we disagree on this. We, we don't have to see eye to eye. We can still love each other and be perfectly uh, bonded in fellowship. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Be like-minded according to Christ Jesus. Verse 6, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see the unification that Paul is striving for in this passage. He wants the body of Christ to be able to get along. We shouldn't be dividing over, over non-divisive issues, over non-important issues. With one mind, what is this? We all have the same goal in mind. We all have the same ultimate standard. We all know that the Bible offers our boundaries, that God is our ultimate judge, and we know what's important. We want to take the faith of Jesus Christ to all nations. And we want to, with that mindset, and then with one mouth, so we can unify it, uh, unifiedly, is that a word? We can, <laughs> we can say with unity, thank God He saved us, thank God we've been reconciled, we can, we're all on the same page saying the same thing about how wonderful our Savior is. With one mind, with one mouth, glorify God. So we can all say it together. We don't have to say, well, the weak, the weak can glorify God for one thing, we'll glorify God for something. No, no, we can all glorify Him for the same grace, the same truth. With one mind, one mouth, glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's glorification through unification. How is this? That, that God, despite all of our differences, despite, despite some differences in our conscience even, we are able to see past those things, to see what's truly important, and still get along. We're able to still accept each other. We don't have to see eye to eye in everything. Who can bring that Together, Who can bring the world together in such a way? Only God could. So there's glorification of God because He has given us enough truth, enough grace to recognize the fundamental stuff, to recognize what's not incredibly, uh, I want to say important, but what, what shouldn't be divided over. He's, God has made this clear to us and now we can all get along. And we glorify God for that, that God has brought that unity. Now verse 7, Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. This is a great verse. I want this to sink in, please. When Christ rece received you, did you understand everything about the Bible? No. Did you have it all figured out? No. You... Did you still have faults and problems and troubles and things you were struggling with? Yes. And, and Jesus received you. Now, 
Jesus, when you study his life, on many occasions he rebuked his disciples. He had to straighten them out many, many times. So let's be careful here. Jesus was not a pushover. He was not a doormat. He stood up for what's right. Hebrews chapter 1 says he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. I got several verses here. I'll just give you the, the addresses. Matthew 16, 23. Get thee behind me, Satan. He said that to Peter. Mark 16, 14. Jesus ab- upbraided the disciples for their unbelief. Matthew 17. We studied this recently. Verses 17 and 20. How long shall I suffer you? How long shall I be with you? Talking to the disciples. Luke 9, verses 54 to 56. You know not what spirit you're of. He said, I didn't come to destroy, I came to save. Many times he had to point out to the disciples, you're wrong about this. Just because you point out the errors that somebody else is making. Right? Because sometimes they do cross a scriptural boundary. That does, just because you point that out doesn't mean you don't love them. Christ loved his disciples. John 13 tells us that clearly, but we knew that. He received them even though they had faults. Can you see that? That's the attitude we should have. Receive one another. So that brother's got this and that wrong, and I don't agree with him on that. You can still receive them. We can still have unity. We can still love each other properly, and in so doing, we glorify God. We bring glory to Him. Verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Now Paul, he switches gears here. This is now we've moved on to the second part of the chapter. uh, Glorification through unification dealt with. Now we're going to look at how God sanctified and targeted the Gentiles, the nations. Paul begins by making a very dispensational statement. Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. What does he mean? When Jesus came, he came to preach to Israel. Now we know this from Matthew 10. Jesus told his apostles, Go not to the way of the Gentiles, into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He did this to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised that he would give them their kingdom, that it would be in the land of Canaan, and so forth. That was the primary goal. That was the short-term goal of of Jesus' ministry. But that was not all there was to it. Even if you look back in Genesis, when God promised to use and bless Abraham, the blessing, that promise that God gave to the fathers, to Abraham, was that through thee I'll bless all the nations. God always had in mind to minister to the whole world. But when Jesus came, he preached directly to Israel, to the Jew first. Then verse 9 And, notice no full stop at the end of verse 8, verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So Jesus was a minister of the circumcision, fulfilling what was promised to the Jewish forefathers. And the ministry of Jesus Christ does something for the Gentiles. That the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, And now Paul is going to quote several verses in succession, all with one one goal in mind. He's pointing out 
that God, over and over again, God had the Gentiles in his mind when he was thinking about the future. Never did the plan of God only have the Jews being exalted and the Gentiles being cast out. That was never God's intention. God wanted to elevate the nation of Israel so that all the other nations would flow to it and thus find the true God. It was always the plan of God to bring the nations into unity and fellowship with God. So verse 9, As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. I'm just going to give you the verses where these are quoted from. You can look them up later if you'd like. Psalm 18, verse 49. Psalm 18, 49. And in each of these cases, you'll see that the, the verses are, are slightly different, mainly because the word for nations, can, it, it can also be written Gentiles. It can also be written heathen. So sometimes you'll see those used interchangeably. But Psalm eighteen forty nine, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles. Well, that proves then that when the kingdom was to be established under the Messiah, that the Gentiles would be there as well. They're not kicked out of the kingdom. Verse 10, and again he saith, now he's going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. So Paul, this is a lecker Bible study. And he's offering several quotations of scripture to support the point that he's making. By the way, you guys that believe God is calling you into the ministry, if you're going to teach and preach, learn how to support the points you make by quoting Scripture. That's what Paul's doing. Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. Laud, like to exalt. That's Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles. Why? If the Gentiles were never part of God's plan and God excluded them, why would they be told to praise Him? Well, that's Paul's point. The Gentiles do have a reason to praise God because they are part of the plan. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah saith, this is Isaiah 11, verse 10, there shall be a root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, and he uh, Jesse, by the way, that's the, uh, that's the father of David, right? just so that you understand what we're talking about. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. So that, when you go back and read that passage, it's clearly talking about the Messiah coming, establishing the Messianic kingdom, and then in that same, in the same breath, it says that the Gentiles are going to be in that kingdom and the Messiah is reigning over them. Verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So let's, let's try to understand the bigger picture of what Paul's talking about. Why is Paul pointing this out to the Roman church? The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. He's saying, guys, I want you to see where you fit into God's plan. 
I want you to see that this isn't this isn't uh, some strange, exceptional case. God has had in mind this whole time to reach out to you, and now you are the fulfillment. So I, I think from from this we go in. There's two things I think that Paul is trying to communicate to them. Number one, this ministry of the gospel going out to the Gentiles and thus bringing them to God. It shouldn't stop with the Romans. He says, guys, you're a part of this great plan. Now you should be filled with joy and peace. This is so exciting to be part of the plan. And I know God has fulfilled what he said. He's a faithful God. But God will also continue to take this, to send this gospel out to other nations, to other people groups. He says, guys, there's a joy and a peace and a hope. There's something wonderful to look forward to. You have all these promises and prophecies that God is, has, has fulfilled partially in bringing you folks into the, into the fold. But there's still more to be done, more to be seen. We're going to see God work in even greater ways. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. You know what the Holy Ghost will do? Cause you to abound in hope. Where do you get hope? Verse 4. That we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So when I look through the Bible and I see that God said He would reach out to the Jew first, And he would bring the Gentiles in. And then I look at history and I go, that's exactly what he did. And that fills me with hope that God's promises, God's word stands true. If he said it, he will do it. And now, whatever the case is, whatever I'm struggling with, whatever whatever I need, whether it's wisdom, some sort of provision, a job, whatever it is, If God has promised it, I can cling to that promise and that fills me with hope. The Holy Spirit will remind you and speak to you through the Scriptures and bring to your remembrance things that Jesus has said, things that God in the Old Testament said. And He will show you how God is performing His Word in your life. And that is something exciting to look forward to. That is abounding. It would cause you to abound in hope. In verse 14, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. I think Paul now is being mindful of the audience to whom he's addressing, uh, to whom he's writing. Paul has not met these people yet. But when you read the book of Romans up till this point, wow, Paul has laid out a lot of different truths. He has explained and touched on so many different things. And it might have come across to the Roman church. They might have received this letter and and thought, now, Paul, do you think we're ignorant of this? Do you think that we don't know these things? Do you think that we are looking down our nose at the weaker brother? Do you think we're despising the powers that be? Do you think that we uh, don't understand how the body of Christ works and how one member should help another member? Don't you think we know this? And Paul is acknowledging, brethren, I know that you guys already have a good handle on this. See, because there were solid Christians in this Roman church. 
we will be introduced to many of them in chapter 16. Other men of God had passed through here and done quite a bit of preaching and established these people. Paul is acknowledging that. So he's saying, listen, I've, I've written all this stuff to you. I don't want you to think that, that I'm under the impression that you don't know this. You guys are well able to admonish one another. You, you know these things. You can teach each other these things. You can help each other stay strong. You guys got a good handle on this. Verse 15, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind. Now, that's key. He's saying, I'm not introducing these thoughts to you. It's not the first time you've heard this stuff about salvation by grace and justification by faith. I'm putting it in mind. I'm just reminding you as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. Guys, I'm telling you this stuff because, hey, I'm a preacher. God has called me to explain these things to people. So I'm just letting you know that I'm on the same page as you. Here's everything I know. Here are my goals. Here's what I'm looking forward to God doing. He says in verse 16 that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He says, guys, the reason I'm telling you all this, God's given me this ministry. And I have Gentiles on my heart. That's why I'm reaching out to you. Ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Sanctification of the nations. So the Holy Spirit is using Paul to take the gospel to these foreign lands, people that have never heard of Christ, never heard of the God of the Bible. Paul is introducing the gospel in these new areas so that groups of Gentiles can be brought into the fold and become one with the people of God, as we learned back in Romans chapter 11. Hold your place here just for a moment. Let me remind you of a verse in Romans 1. Let's look quickly with me. Romans 1 verse 5. Romans 1 verse 5. Paul says here, By whom we have received grace and apostleship, why? For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Paul is aware as he begins to write this letter, I have been called to take the faith to all nations. That is not just Paul's calling, but that's the calling of the body of Christ. That's our New Testament, one of the purposes of the New Testament church, to evangelize and make disciples in the world. Now, back to Romans 15. And verse 17, I have therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. That's a strange statement. We don't often hear Paul talking like this. It's still true, obviously, but we don't hear him talk about things that he can glory in. And he's not glorying in what he personally has done or came up with, right? I have whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ. He says, because Jesus saved me and called me to this vocation. He says, I, I have a reason to glory. What, what is he glorying in? What, what can he be happy about? What can he, I hesitate to use the word boast, but you understand how I mean that. What's he so happy about? God used me. Jesus used me. I can glory in the fact 
that God used me as a vessel to take the truth to the Gentiles. That's something to get excited about. If you have labored for the Lord, we, we studied this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, you prove your own work so that you have rejoicing in yourself alone and not in another. Paul didn't have to look at Barnabas or Peter or John or some other apostle and say, I'm glad somebody's doing something for the Lord. Paul was able to look at what the Lord had allowed him to do. And because he had labored abundantly, because he put into action this calling, this grace that he'd been given, he could look back on his life and go, man, this was a life worth living. This was a life well spent. That's what he's glorying in. Verse 18, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me. Wrought means worked. That Christ didn't do through me. uh, To make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. So he says, I'm not going to talk about what other people have done. I'm, I'm referring to the various things that I've seen God do in my life, through my life, and how He's allowed me to reach the Gentiles. Verse 19, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now let me pause there for a moment and talk about that. The power of the Spirit of God, how was it manifested? Well, you can see in the first part of the verse, mighty signs and wonders. So the miracles, the wunderwerke, that, that is part of what Paul's referring to as in, in the power of the Spirit. Now we've, we study this in discipleship, so I won't talk long about it now. The miracles that were part of the apostolic ministry, it is no longer a part of our ministry now. See, when we go out to preach, we're not going to see these miracles consistently happening to confirm what we're preaching. It did in the apostolic days. There was a reason for it. The the New Testament hadn't been written. These things needed to be confirmed. They have been confirmed now. However, we are not going to say that miracles can no longer happen or that God doesn't do them anymore. Now, Some people go that far as to say miracles don't happen anymore. They only happen in the apostolic time. I, I don't agree with that. I believe that miracles can still happen, but we we cannot go as far as to say they're always going to accompany the preaching of the gospel. They're not a part of our ministry, but they can certainly happen. I have read too many stories of missionaries going to a new place where the gospel had, had not reached that generation, and God does allow, He does do some mighty deeds, wonderful things, just to prove to those people that what this missionary is saying is it has power to it. Now, the power of the Holy Spirit is not limited to miracles. That can also refer to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the ability of the Holy Spirit to open somebody's eyes to the light of the gospel, to lift the blindness that the God of this world places on somebody. So Jesus said, when the Comforter has come, He'll reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's be careful to understand, when we preach the gospel to somebody, they don't get saved because of our wonderful explanation and how clear we can make it. We should strive to make it clear. But, when somebody's born again, 
they decide to give their heart to Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit took our clear presentation, took our, our genuine care and concern, and the Holy Spirit was working on that person's heart, whispering into that heart, teaching that person how much they need Christ. It's not us alone that gets that job done. We're just part of, we're part of the equation. We're a tool, let's say, in God's hand. Paul says, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem, Paul did preach in Jerusalem, and round about unto, now you guys give me a moment here, Illyricum, Illyricum, for almost 20 years as I taught the book of Romans, right? At various times throughout those 20 years, I pronounced that word incorrectly. Maybe this is the first time I've gotten it right on, you know, during a Bible school class. Illyricum. I've always said alicrium. Illyricum. I've always mispronounced it. And then one day I slowed down and looked at that word and thought, that is not alicrium. It's illyricum. And even there, maybe I'm still saying it incorrectly, but I, I think I'm a little closer to the correct pronunciation. So that from Jerusalem, now I'll let you look on a map later, the distance here, but Jerusalem, roundabout into Illyricum, that is right about where we would now put Croatia. That's way up north. Roundabout into Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Two ways to understand fully preached. We can understand it as saying, when Paul preached, he delivered the whole message. He explained the whole gospel. And I think this would apply not just to what you learn in discipleship as the five parts of the gospel. But even beyond that, the gospel could also, when we read about the mystery of the gospel, we're talking about things like the body of Christ, the indwelling Christ. It could extend even to that. So Paul could be referring to the message and how he fully preached it. He did not hold anything back. That's true. But the other thing is more of a geographical type of of, uh, aspect, and that is everywhere he went, he fully preached. He made the most of every opportunity in every town, every village, every city. He stopped and he preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum, uh, which... As far as we can see in the book of Acts, that is also true. And by the grace of God, it should be true for us. Now, verse 20, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. So Paul didn't go where some other apostle had been and just continue a work or uh, continue, let's say, join. he didn't just go and join in on an already existing church, which... By the way, it's not wrong. You can do that. Several people in the book of Acts did that. But that wasn't Paul's calling. He was called to take the gospel to an area that had never heard. Verse 21, But as it is written, and he's going to quote Isaiah 52, verse 15, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. Can I please beg you later, go look at that cross-reference. Isaiah 52, 15. Look at, the, at the, the context of it. It's talking about Jesus suffering and dying. It talks about his visage, his, his face marred more than any man. It's talking about the suffering, the passion of Christ. 
what I love about this, it looks as if Paul is telling us what verse God used to show Paul, to speak to Paul personally as to what Paul should do with the gospel. We're all called to preach it somewhere to someone. How do we know where? How do we know when? Paul, as he was reading through Isaiah, I think he came to this verse and this verse leapt off the page. It jumped off the page and grabbed a hold of Paul's heart and said, Paul, I want you to go to people that have never heard and tell them the gospel. I want you to go to a place where that whole area has never heard of it. Now, God might call you to go somewhere where there are churches established. They have heard the gospel. Maybe they need some clarification. Maybe they need edification. Maybe they need you know, someone to teach them, build them up in the faith. So there's many different callings. You, you, you get alone with God on that part of it. But let the Scripture guide you. Let the Scripture speak to you personally. I think that's how Paul took it. But look at that cross-reference. It's a, it's a wonderful passage. Verse 22, For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. Now, Paul wanted to go towards Rome, meet these Christians, see this church. But because he had this desire and this calling, this specific calling to go to areas where Christ had not been named, then Rome, because there was already a church, church existing there, if Paul had a choice, do I go to Rome, do I go that direction, or do I go up some other path where they haven't heard it? He'd always choose that other way. And he said, for this cause, I, I just haven't had time to get to you guys. Not because I don't love you, don't want to see you. It's just there's a lot of people that haven't heard yet. Verse 23, but now having no more place in these parts. Now, if you look at the end of the book, there's a, a, a subscript that says, written to the Romans from Corinthus or Corinth. So when you look back at, at uh, the book of Acts, Paul was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And it doesn't seem as if there was any persecution that pushed Paul out of Corinth. When he says, having no more place in these parts, I, I think what he was getting at is, I've done my job here. I've, uh, I've preached the gospel everywhere here. Everybody's heard it. Now, no, I need to move on to the next spot. Uh, having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. Now, you can look at the map. You can see if you go from Jerusalem to Spain, you can see how Rome would be a, a nice stopping off spot. Um, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. So he says, I, I, I trust to see you. I'll get to you and see you. And then I also trust that you'll help me get thitherward to the next destination. So he's, he's almost putting the thought in the back of their mind, guys, I'm going to need some transport money to get to the next stop. Uh, but he says at the end of verse 24, if first I be somewhat filled with your company, filled with your company, loneliness, the word itself lends the idea of a void. And fellowship, it fills that void. And Paul, I love how he worded it, filled with your company. Man, I, during this lockdown, I have missed that aspect of the body of Christ. And I must admit, I, 
Any moment I get around somebody, I thoroughly enjoy being filled with their company. This afternoon, I had the privilege of sitting with Leon, chatting with him for about an hour. I was so humbled. I was so humbled. The way God is using him. I, I told him, you know, the body of Christ, the reason we assemble together is to provoke one another to love and to good works. And among many other things I told him, I said, Brother, today you have provoked me to love and to good works. I was filled with his company. Verse 25, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. Now this is, has to do with that big famine that took place there. And we'll see now in the context what Paul was going to do for them. Verse 26, For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now the churches of Macedonia... And Achaia, that, the Macedonian churches, that's the Philippians and the Thessalonians. And Achaia, that's the Corinthians. So Paul, if, if you've been following along in 2 Corinthians 8, I taught a couple lessons from there recently. Paul was talking to them about this same offering that we're reading about now. Paul took the, the offerings, these love offerings from these churches, and he's, <clears throat> he's going to deliver it to the suffering saints <clears throat> Sorry, to the poor saints there in Jerusalem. Verse 27, It hath pleased them verily, truly, genuinely, and their debtors they are. <clears throat> Sorry. So these Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia, um, Achaia, they are debtors to the saints in Jerusalem. Why is that? That's where the, the first church was started. That's where the apostles went out of and the gospel flowed from there. So why are the Gentiles saved? Because the, these people in Jerusalem went out and took the gospel to these other places. So now these, these Gentile saints owe these Jewish saints a debt. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. So these Gentiles got fed spiritually with the gospel, so now it's their duty to feed them physically with uh, these contributions with which they could buy food. Now this is something we study in discipleship as well, this principle in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul explains this. There it has to do with uh, supporting the, the pastor or the local church, but same concept. Verse 28, When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. So he says, first I got to go to Jerusalem and seal to them this fruit. It's one thing for the Macedonians and the Corinthians to say, guys, we're going to send an offering. That's one thing. But to seal it, how do you provide the evidence? You take them the money, say that they made the promise, here it is. I'm I'm sealing to them this fruit. I'm finishing the job. It's more than just a promise. It's not just that they handed it to me. It has now made it to its final destination. Job done. Sealed to them this fruit. I will come by you into Spain. So he's just letting them know. Paul's letting them know his, his preparations and his expectations for his upcoming trip. 
Verse 29, And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. He says, guys, I can't wait to be around you. And everything that that we can enjoy as it pertains to the gospel, the fellowship, we can admonish one another, we can talk about biblical things, all of that stuff. Guys, I'm going to come unto you and share everything I know about the gospel and about Christ with you. And again, acknowledging that they're not ignorant of it, but looking forward to that fellowship. Verse 30, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Notice how the Trinity, Paul does this often in his epistles. He slips the Trinity into the verse. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and at the end, God, which I think we can refer to the Father. Now he says, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. So he's our ultimate goal of, you know, the... He loved us so much that motivates us. The love of Christ constrains us. And the love of the Spirit, this intimacy that we have, this communion with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, right? The love of God is shed in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Paul appeals to these things and says, we have the same motivation, we have the same Spirit in us, drawing us closer and closer to God. Now, guys, I appeal to that. Please, Please, you know we have the same mind and with the the same mouth. We have one goal. Pray for me. Pray for me that I can accomplish this this, uh, journey. It's important to Paul. Now, watch verse 31. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Paul is concerned about two things. Number one, the, the Jews, the lost Jews in Judea, they're, they want to kill Paul. And Paul's a little worried about the church in Jerusalem. He knows that some of the saints there, which we might consider weaker brethren because they were clinging to those Old Testament ordinances, Acts 21, He says, guys, I'm a little worried that the saints may not accept it as well. So pray for me that this this ministry of delivering these goods, pray that it works out. Verse 32, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. So this is another way of saying Lord willing, right? That I may come unto you with joy, Lord willing, by the will of God. Paul doesn't want to show up in Rome going, oh man, guys, it was horrible. He wants to show up with joy going, let me tell you how great this was. Let me tell you about this victory we had. And may with you be refreshed. I can get there, I can can get to the church there in Rome and take a break and be refreshed by your company. Now that was Paul's prayer request. Do you know what happened? Paul went to Jerusalem and he got arrested and he got beaten. And he ended up going, he finally made it to Rome, but in chains and shackles. The thought has crossed my mind. Now, to be honest, it crossed my mind. I'll say what crossed my mind, but then let me answer my my own thought here. What if these Roman Christians didn't pray, and that's why Paul was arrested? What if they could have prayed more fervently and maybe changed the outcome? But let me say this, we know from the book of Acts, Paul was told by God not 
to go. Right? We, Acts 21, he was told over and over again, don't go, don't go, don't go. But Paul is still making this plea, right? So the thought crossed my mind, maybe these Christians didn't pray. So in this case, I, I don't think that their prayers could have, could have changed the outcome because God was even saying, Paul, don't go. That being said, the principle, there's still a lesson to be learned. Our prayers, and we learned this in Matthew the other night, our prayers do make a difference. And when we have people going out, missionaries, we know we have missionaries in a foreign field. Guys, we've got to pray for them. We've got to pray for them. We've got to pray for Leon. We've got to to pray for each other. In our own little spheres, when we go to work tomorrow, when we go to school, reaching out to our classmates, whatever the case is, God help us to make a difference in this world. Verse 33 concludes, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Which is a very common ending. It looks like Paul tried to end there, and then a typical preacher, he goes on for one more chapter. So we got one more chapter to go through, but that's all for Romans chapter 15. So if you guys have any questions, you please feel free to send them to me privately, but otherwise we will close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for the comfort and patience of the Scriptures. Lord, we know that you don't always work as quickly as we would like, but you always work. And you make good on your Word. And Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love of the Spirit, because Lord, we know how much you care about these things. We, we pray for that missionary couple in that foreign land, for Leon. We pray for the people in our church as they go out tomorrow. God, might you walk with them. Help us, use us, Lord, to take the faith to all nations. Even if that's the Gentile living next door to us, or maybe on the other side of the world, God, thank you for the privilege of being involved in this wonderful calling. I pray that your hand would be on each each of our listeners tonight, the ones that have tuned in, those that listen to it later, God. I pray that you continue to work in our hearts glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Lord willing, we'll see you guys soon.